Hey, as most of you know, uh, among my responsibilities here at the church, um, I'm very honored and privileged to get to uh, lead our youth group. We meet every Wednesday night, and, and we have an incredible, truly incredible group of, of young people, grades 6 through 12. And part of the night, uh, the first 15 to 20 minutes or so, is we always eat dinner together. And we've been on basically a three-meal rotation throughout the year. Uh, the three meals are uh, like meat and cheese sandwiches, like, you know, those kind of sandwiches, deli sandwiches, uh, pizza from Casey's, and uh, hot dogs. We have thrown walking tacos in there a couple times, but it's primarily those three. And so hot dogs are a big favorite around here uh, among our staff because it's always like drawing straws to see who has to prepare them uh, because we just have this little kitchen with no ventilation and no windows to open or anything like that. And so when you put 100-plus hot dogs in one of those cooker-type things, it's a bit of a strong smell. Uh, no matter how much you like hot dogs, I promise you would not like that smell. And so uh, I, I usually opt out because uh, I just claim, which is true, I don't know how to cook. I, I don't know how to cook, guys. Someone else got to do it. And so um, it's always just a running joke. Who's going to do this? Who's going to do this? And so last time we had hot dogs, I was asking kind of about the cooking process. I was asking Kate and Emily, like, how does this work? And so we talked about how you, you know, put it's like a roaster, and then you put water in the bottom, right? And then you put the pan in, and then you put some more water in, and you put the hot dogs uh, in there. And you use the water in the actual pan with the hot dogs to make sure that the hot dogs don't, like, stick to the sides and burn, which we've had happen before and creates an even worse smell. Uh, and so it's really important you have that water, plenty of water to make sure uh, it doesn't stick, and it does, you know, it kind of produces like a steam effect, obviously, and helps warm the hot dogs up because they're obviously already fully cooked, but you're just warming them up. And so a couple of weeks ago, I had this question. I said, okay, so what you're telling me is these hot dogs sit in this water for however long, hour, hour and a half, two hours as they kind of warm up. Well, what happens with that water afterwards? It's like, well, you dump it out. And I was thinking, mm, that could make a great youth group game. And so after they cooked the hot dogs, I took four cups and went down in the hot dog water and filled each, like, it was just one of those, like, um, Dixie cup, solo cups, not huge, and I only filled them about maybe, like, that full, so about three ounces or so, and there were lots of floaters uh, in there and little chunks of hot dog bits, and the water was definitely had a pinkish hue to it, uh, and so the uh, the game we had a different game already planned for that night, but I thought this is a bonus, and I had these giant Kit Kat bars to give away, and so I asked, are there four volunteers who would like to come up and drink this hot dog water? Uh, by that time, it, it was definitely lukewarm. Not that it would have been better, like warm, but it was lukewarm. Uh, and so I said, here's the deal: I will allow you to a water chaser, but you can't use the chaser until you drink all the hot dog water. So like, you can't do the here's some hot dog water, here's some water. You have to. Go all in. And so we had four guys, no surprise, four guys, jump up to do it. One of the four took a look at it and sat right back down and put the rest of it. The other three, uh, a couple of them are here today, they went full on through with it. Uh, and it was, you know, only one of them seemed to gag really strongly. The others toughed it out like champs and got their Kit Kat bars. But I tell you all that, all that as an intro to say that's my kind of fun. Like, that's my kind of fun. I know that it's not everyone's kind of fun. Some people thought that was not a very nice thing to do to kids. And I said, I didn't force them. They volunteered, and they were Kit Kat bars. So, like, it's up to them. But that's my kind of fun, okay? And so I tell you that because the sermon this morning, the way, the way that we're going to go through things, is my kind of fun. Now, I know it's not going to be everyone's. I get that. But it is my kind of fun because what we're going to be doing this morning I talked about it some last week and gave you a homework assignment, which we'll be talking about here in just a minute. But we're going to cover two entire chapters of the Bible. We're going to cover two entire chapters of the Bible, almost verse by verse. And we're going to really walk through and really dig in deep and extract a lot of stuff out of those two chapters. Now, that is my kind of fun. I love that stuff. Yes, that's nerdy. I get it. But I love it. So if you have a Bible with you, and a physical one, open it to the book of Acts, which was part of your homework assignment from last Sunday. Um, Acts chapter 1, if you have your Bible app uh, on your phone, feel free to open that to Acts chapter 1, and we will have the verses on the screen as well for those of you that don't have either, so everybody should be able to follow along. So the reason uh, that I gave you an assignment 
to read Acts chapters 1 through 10 last week is because it's so incredibly important when you are thinking about and talking about and studying scripture that you read it in sort of these large swaths, right? That you don't, it's okay, and I've talked about this before, it's okay every once in a while to have a couple verses that you really read on and, and meditate on, and that's great. That's really valuable. I've done that many, many times, but it's equally as important, if not more important, that you take in chunks. Because what taking in the big chunks of Scripture, the broad swaths, chapters, multiple things, it really gives you this very nice, broad, comprehensive overview of what's going on. And it establishes so much context, context excuse me, that you cannot establish when you try to isolate one verse here, one verse there, and it's called kind of like a cherry-picking thing. It just doesn't work. That's not the way the Bible was written. That's never the way that it was intended to be read or interpreted or discussed or any of that. Chapter divisions, verse markings, all those things are modern inventions, and they're very helpful in lots of ways. And at times, they're very random, and actually, they're not even really well done in some situations. But when you read 10 chapters and like in the book of Acts, you're going to get a really good picture of what's going on. And that is so important to be able to read Scripture broadly and establish a context. If you were here last week, you know that it was a bit of a different type of message. It was almost an exercise in imagination. And I painted this picture for you of what it would have been like to be one of the disciples, one of the 12 that Jesus chose. And we went through that, and there wasn't really like this clear like takeaway or clear ending or anything like that to it. The whole idea was to establish a framework for you to read Acts 1 through 10, to answer some questions, to come back this Sunday, and then we go through it. And that just helps you really start to, again, glean stuff from this. So as a reminder, uh, the homework from last week was to do the following. We have this on the screen. Read Acts chapters 1 through 10, and answer the following questions as you read. Number one, what were Jesus' parting instructions to his disciples? This is before he ascended up into heaven. Number two, what was the response of the disciples after he ascended? Number three, what happened on the day of Pentecost? Hugely significant. Uh, number four, what things seemed to be the primary focus of the early church? And number five, do you think any of this has any relevance for you or us today? And if so, what might it be? So we are going to answer the first four questions together and expand on them some. And the fifth one I'm going to leave you with some thoughts, some things to take away from today. And we're going to come back again next week in week three of the series, and I'm going to talk more about that. So let's go ahead and dive in, okay? My kind of fun. Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And as we go through this, I'm going to do something that I don't always do, which is I'm going to make comments uh, on different things that are being said, different things that we're going to be reading. So just do your best to kind of stick with it. This is a great day, a great day to take notes. Some of you are note takers, some of you aren't, but this is a great day to take notes and just jot different things down. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and I'm reading from the NIV, the New International Version. So your versions may be a little bit different, but if you have a Bible app, I'd recommend that you bring up the NIV. It's just easier to follow along. So Verses 1 through 8. In my former book, Theophilus. All right, so let's stop there. In my former book, Theophilus. So right away, we have to wonder, well, what is this author talking about? What is his former book? Well, we know that Acts was written by a guy, a doctor, a later disciple of Jesus named Luke. And that Luke, not surprisingly, wrote the gospel of Luke. So, when he says, in my former book, Theophilus, he's referring to the Gospel of Luke. Now, we have an order of the Gospels in the New Testament. Most of you probably know this. If you don't, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then comes Acts. But ideally, the Gospels would have been ordered differently with Luke at the end and then Acts right next to it. The reason they're ordered the way they are is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called the Synoptic Gospels. They all three seem to borrow source material from each other. There's a lot of commonality, a lot of similarities. They were writing to different people in different places at different times and trying to really establish Jesus in some different ways, but there's a ton of commonality amongst those three. And then John is very, very, very different. John is a lot of people's, including myself, our fav favorite gospel. 
Because John is an interesting character. He wrote in an interesting way. And it's very, very different than the other three. But because of that order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then we come to Acts. A lot of people don't know that Luke-Acts is actually considered essentially like one book. In fact, if you go to Bible college or seminary or go on beyond that, you will study usually I have a class or a textbook that's just called Luke-Acts because they're so similar. He just keeps going with the story, and there's a rhythm to the script that he was, he was a doctor. He was a very intelligent guy, and he had a very clear rhythm in how he wrote, how Luke begins and how it ends and how Acts begins and ends. He did this very intentional sort of rhythm that I don't have all the time to get into today. My kind of fun, but really would bore you, and so we won't go there, but that's what he's talking about. In my former book, in my gospel, in my account of Jesus's life and the way that I wrote these things down, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. So we know that, things that Jesus did, miracles and signs and wonders and healings and all kinds of stuff, and to teach. So over the course of Jesus' three and a half years of ministry, Luke wrote about all those things, as many as he could fit in, until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, and we read about that last week something. So then he goes on a little bit. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Again, we talked about that some last week. It wasn't just one time that he proved he was alive. He had to prove it multiple times because it was mind-blowing to them and because his body was human in some ways, but it was non-human in lots of others, and they were just probably trying to figure out what's really going on here. So he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Of God. So from the time of his resurrection to the time of his ascension was 40 days. And during that time, how Luke defines, singularly defines, all of Jesus' instructions and teachings and thoughts in those 40 days, Luke clarifies it with one thing, one defining statement. He spoke about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And this is incredibly consistent with what Jesus talked about more than anything as recorded in the Gospels. He was always talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And those terms are interchangeable with each other. So if you see the kingdom of heaven, same thing, kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. That's what he talked about more than anything. He did not talk about like praying a prayer to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior so you could go to heaven someday. Is that an important thing to do, to accept Jesus, to believe in him? Absolutely it is. But he didn't talk about that as in isolation or singularly like, you do this and you're good. He talked about this is the first step in a process to establishing the kingdom of God in your own life. The kingdom of God is within you. It's in your heart. All these things, and then you're supposed to bring it to the people around you, and you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. So Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, we're continuing on here, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And here's our answer to question number one, if you didn't figure it out from last week. I'm just assuming everyone did their homework, so we're just going to go with that. So he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. Do not leave Jerusalem. They were not in Jerusalem at this time. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. Now, really quick, the Jerusalem would have been at this time when Jesus gave these instructions, the very last place they would have wanted to go. That was just where 40 days ago, Jesus was crucified. There was still a lot going on only a few weeks after about this guy, Jesus, and his followers, there was still a lot. The church, the, I'm sorry, the people would still have been in fear. They would have considered themselves in danger if they were identified as one of Jesus' followers. That's essentially what led to Peter's denial of Jesus, was he was nervous that he would be discovered, and then he also would be subjected to torture, to crucifixion, to whatever. And they're still in fear of this. And here's Jesus telling them, here's what I want you to do. Go back to Jerusalem. Oh, and don't leave until this happens. Wait there for the gift my father had promised, which you have heard me speak about. So he had talked about this gift, whatever it was, and we'll find out here in a second, 
Whatever it was, he's saying, I've talked about this before. Now's the time for it to come to fruition, for me, for my father to deliver on this promise. And I need you to be in Jerusalem. For John, speaking of John the Baptist, for John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that language right there, that line is even in the Old Testament, there are prophecies regarding a baptism, what they say of the Holy Spirit and of fire. John the Baptist, right, said, I baptize you with water, but there's one who comes after me who will not baptize you with water, but will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, they had no idea what that meant, no idea what Jesus, what John, what the Old Testament prophets were talking about, Holy Spirit and fire. They didn't have a grid for that. They understood that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit showed up on occasion in certain situations to certain men of God and did amazing things through them. But it wasn't something that was ever present with them. And so they had to wonder, like, what do you mean? And here's proof, the next verse is proof that they had literally no idea what he was talking about. After all he says, right, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift. John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They literally had no clue. If you don't know what they're asking there, what they're saying is, is this when you are going to get your revenge on Rome? They crucified you, but here you are. You're back, and clearly you've got a lot of power, right? Now, is this the time, is this what you're talking about, that you are going to go and we're going to get an army together or whatever it looks like, and we are going to just slaughter all these people, and we're going to establish the kingdom? They still, they still, after all this, didn't get it. They still had what we call a militant view of the Messiah. They still thought he was going to be a great military leader, a great political leader who would lead Israel in a conquest over their occupiers, over their oppressors. After all that, they still don't get it. And then he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So he doesn't even answer their question. But you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they're like, wait, what? Now we not only are just waiting in Jerusalem, but now what you're saying is we're going to start talking about you in Jerusalem? That doesn't seem like a good idea right now. He says, in Jerusalem, you're going to tell people about me. Oh, we don't want to. That doesn't seem like a good idea, Jesus. Uh, and, And he says, in all Judea, and then all Samaria, and then this prophetic thing about what would become global missions, and to the ends of the earth, which at their time would have been impossible for them to conceive of because the known world for them was relatively small. They had no idea how big the world really was. Okay, so a couple verses. Skip down a couple verses. Let's go Acts 1, 12. We're going to go 12 through 19. Is everybody hanging in there? You sticking with me? My kind of fun. Lots of notes you can take. I promise we're going to go places with this. But even as we're talking now, this is a place, this is a good thing that we're doing. It's good for you to learn all this stuff. So Acts 1, 12 through 19. So Jesus' parting instructions were, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift. What was the response of the disciples was question number two you were supposed to answer. Here we have the answer to that. Verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, the famous upper room, right? Another upper room. The uh, Last Supper was in an upper room. This, again, is in an upper room. Some people think, a lot of people think it was the same room that they had been in, and they just returned to that place. An interesting note here, just some random bit of trivia for Jeff or whoever else likes trivia is that a Sabbath day's walk. It's very specific what Luke's talking about here. The Sabbath had all kinds of crazy rules around it. Very few that were actually from God, uh, a lot that were made up by religious leaders as they tried to continually impose more and more restrictions on people. And so a Sabbath day's walk, you were only allowed to walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. Uh, Beyond that, it was considered work, and you were in sin, right? And so it's my kind of rule. I can't walk. Sorry, can't do any walking today. Got, if I walk too much, i got to stay on the couch. My step count needs to stay low. Uh, and so Sabbath day's walk, you were allowed to walk, and this seems super arbitrary, but um, whatever. It was 0.8 miles. 
okay? 0.8 miles. That was how much you were allowed to walk. And this just seems absurd, but that's what they were able to do. So they walked their 0.8 miles uh, into Jerusalem, and they go to an upper room. And then Luke tells us who was there. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. So he's obviously telling us who was there, and by inference, we notice Judas was not there, right? And we're going to talk about that here in a second. They all joined together constantly in prayer. They all joined together constantly in prayer. So they're waiting, but they're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs. They're joining together constantly in prayer, right? waiting for this thing to happen. And it says, along with the women, it's a very <laughs> sort of broad, along with the women, and then he's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary's there, whether you knew that or not. And with his brothers, Jesus's brothers. Jesus had a whole bunch of siblings, um, whether you knew that or not. That'd be, talk about pressure to live up to something. Um, and so, can you just be more like your brother? Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> he was the son of God, and born of a virgin, and it's just hard. And so, um, but they all joined constantly together in prayer. So a lot of scholars think, this is interesting, they think that besides Jesus's brothers, so we know that there were probably, let's just say four or five Jesus's brothers, and then the 11 disciples, so we'll say 15 or 16, that all the rest of Jesus's followers at that time were women. Isn't that interesting? And we're gonna talk about the number here in just one second, and then it's gonna get more interesting. So they're praying. They're all together in this upper room. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. And then Luke notes, a group numbering about 120. So let's just say it's 120 square, right? And you've got 15, we'll just say, a men. And then 105 women. Yeah, that's right. Uh, think about That's crazy, isn't it? Especially in that day, if you understand that women had very little value. They were not treated well. They were not respected. They didn't count for a whole lot. But yet, here's Jesus and at the end of his ministry, after, think about this for a second. This is such an interesting thing. After three and a half years, all the miracles he performed, all the people he healed, all the demons he drove out, all the lepers he cleansed, all the powerful teachings that he did, all the crowds that flocked to see him and that pressed in so hard around him and wouldn't let him rest. After all that, he's crucified, right? He's resurrected. 40 days later, how many people are still with him? 120. 120. That's it. 105-ish women, including his mom, right? She kind of has to be there. And then like 15 guys, that's it, right? And the only men, the only men who are still there, out of all of them, right, are his disciples and his brothers, right? So girl power, right? they're still there. So in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. So there was a prophecy, Old, Old Testament prophecy, that somebody would betray Jesus, and, and Peter is referencing that, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and shared in our ministry. And then it goes on to super interesting stuff. With the payment he received, there's a parentheses here, I think, and yep, it is there, and it probably is in your Bible too. Or, um, yeah, with the payment he received for his wickedness, like how Luke just calls it out, wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, which if you don't know what that is, it gets more interesting. His body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Thanks, Dr. Luke. That's cool to know. That's an interesting detail that you could have left out, and we would have all been fine. Uh, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, which means the field of blood. We know that Judas bought this field, and his body didn't just randomly burst open. We know in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, 5, Matthew tells us that when G Judas comes back and he's realized he's made a huge mistake, if you want to go to that next verse, you can. Um, he comes back to the Pharisees who paid him, and he tries to give the money back, and they won't take it. So Judas threw the money into the temples and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. 
So this is, this is interesting, and I know this is going to be a little weird for some of you, but basically what happens is Judas ends up buying this field. He goes to this field. He hangs himself there. And as gruesome as it was, what happened was Judas's dead body hung in the hot sun of Jerusalem. Nobody touched it. Nobody messed with it. It just would hang there. And eventually, as you know what happens with bodies, it began to rot. And it rotted to the point where the, whatever he hung himself with, he broke open. We'll just say that, right? He, was, he hit the ground, right? And because he was so decomposed already, he burst open. It's interesting that Luke chooses to tell us this, isn't it? That he decides, like, I'm going to tell you that he fell headlong. Because everybody would have known that he was writing to that Judas hung himself. They would have known that already. So he's just saying, oh, by the way, also, nobody touched his body, and he had this gruesome, horrible death. It's, some people think it's a bit of like a, not a dig necessarily at Judas per se, but almost like a little bit of warning and foreshadowing. It's like, you probably want to be on Jesus' side, like when it's all said and done. So, all right, let's keep going. Now, we're going to go to Acts 2. So we're over halfway, about halfway there. So, real quick, Acts 2, chapter 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all in one place. From the time of Jesus' right, resurrection to his ascension was 40 days. And from the time of his ascension to the day of Pentecost, we know through the calendar back then, was 10 days. So, 40 days Jesus was with them. He ascends, tells them to go wait. They've been waiting at this point for 10 days. We know this. This is way more detailed than I'll be able to go into. We know this because there was a specific festival that culminated with Pentecost. And we know how long that festival was. And we know when it started by biblical accounts. So we know this was a 10-day period. And we know that Jews from all over the known world would have been in Jerusalem at this time for this festival. It was basically required of them to come and to worship Yahweh. So they're all there. When the day of Pentecost came, they, meaning the 120, were still all together in one place. This is where it just gets awesome. Um, Acts 2, 2 through 4. Let's keep going. And suddenly, just think about this again. You, you've had this whirlwind, and now you've been waiting in this upper room, pretty fearful, pretty unsure of what's happening. And all of a sudden, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Now, I don't know if that was like, you know, tornadic in nature in terms of how it sounded or whatever it was, but it was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and it filled the house where they were sitting. All of a sudden, this just happens. Try to picture yourself there. They saw then what seemed to be tongues of fire. So if you, a tongue of fire would essentially just be, imagine like a little bit of like fire, just like a, you know, like this kind of, this size of like fire, but it was just like hovering. Okay, that's like a tongue of fire. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest again on each of, of them. Maybe you've seen some old uh, classical, uh, even medieval art that depicts this day and there are little flames above each of the apostles and each of the people's heads in that room. And so again, here we have, right? What was the promise? baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? So, came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This had never happened, ever. Not in all biblical history. First time, right? In the past, like I said, the Holy Spirit, he was what we call visitational, meaning he showed up once in a while and usually just to one person in a very specific situation to help them achieve something powerful, right? But here you have 120 people, 105 women, and the Holy Spirit shows up in power on all of them. All of them were filled simultaneously with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I do not have time to go into the gift of tongues this morning, but you'll see here kind of what happened with it initially. So they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They're all talking in different languages. It's safe to assume, it seems at least, that the 120 of them were speaking in 120 different languages or really close to that number. 
right? So that's verse four. They're doing this. They're probably like, what? I mean, think about this again, if this is you. We read this with 2,000 years of hindsight, and we can easily skip over it. But if this is you, you're sitting there in this room, this violent wind comes and fire pops over your head, and suddenly you're speaking a language you don't even know. None of these were educated people, probably. I mean, women weren't even allowed to get education, so you have 105 of them. We know the apostles weren't educated, the ones that were there at the time, right? And we don't think Jesus' brothers probably were either. So they're speaking a foreign language. Now, let's go to verses 5 and 6. I combined some here just to help us out. Verses 5 through 6 and then 12 through 13. So they're doing this. And it says, now they were staying in Jerusalem. Uh, or, I'm sorry. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, as I mentioned earlier, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They'd all come into Jerusalem. At this point, we know there were hundreds of thousands of people easily in Jerusalem, which maybe doesn't sound like a ton to us today, but if you think about the population of the world back then, there's a lot of people, right? When they, so they hear this sound. They're staying in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where they were at. They're somewhere in Jerusalem, and they heard this sound. They heard, right, maybe the violent wind. They definitely heard the disciples of Jesus speaking in different languages. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. They're super confused. Like, what's going on? Because each one heard their own language being spoken. So this crowd shows up all of the nations in the known world that are God-fearing Jews, and there's not a single represented country, nation, tribe, whatever there, not one that doesn't hear their language being spoken by somebody they know, there's no way they know our language. Would that make you bewildered? It's not a word we use a lot these days, but bewildered? It would make you confused. Amazed, then it says, amazed, we're going to keep going, amazed and perplexed. So their minds were blown, and they're also like trying to wrap their mind around it. Like, what's going on? They asked one another, what does this mean? Like, something's going on, isn't it? Right? What does this mean? And some, however, as is always the case, right, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. They have had too much wine. I don't know about you. Well, let's just put it this way. I haven't had too much wine since before I was a Christian, Okay. But when I had too much wine, my response was not to speak in foreign languages that I didn't know prior. Maybe it was for you, and if so, let's talk afterwards, because that's really cool. But, like, that's not a common thing that happens. I've heard people speak in what they think is, like, a language, and it's not, okay? It's not a language. They might be speaking English, and you can't understand them. And so that's not usually the response of when you have too much wine. So this happens. This is all—I mean, again, just get this picture— Fire, wind, speaking in languages, people gather. They're all amazed and perplexed. What's going on? And some people are like, oh, they've had too much wine, right? That always happens, right? There's always naysayers. There's always skeptics. There's always doubters, right? There's never enough proof for doubt, right? It's just the reality of things, right? So then Acts 2.14, just the very first part here, real quick. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. So he's talking about the others who are there. So they all stand up, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. This, again, in 2,000 years of hindsight, doesn't seem like a big deal to us because we know that Peter was essentially like the father of the church for the Jewish people, the Jewish community, that God used him, that Jesus had even prophesied in some way that Peter would be the rock upon which Jesus like built his church and all of this kind of stuff. But if you think about this as it was happening, Peter, of all the guys to speak up, from a speaking up standpoint, he was maybe the most likely, right? But from a speaking up with boldness about Jesus person, he was probably the least likely. I mean, Peter in the Gospels, if you just read them as though you've never read them before and you focus on Peter, Peter is almost like a comedic figure. He is like a clown. He's like, you know, one of those guys who just can't help but put his foot in his mouth. He almost never says anything good. The only thing he ever says that we know that was good was when he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus' response is, you didn't figure this out yourself, Peter. <laughs> That's what he says. The one thing he says good, Jesus is like, dude, you didn't, you, you didn't get that on your own. The Holy Spirit revealed that to you. Everything else he says, 
is wrong, right? Jesus calls him Satan at one point, right? He's constantly, I will never deny, no matter what. <laughs> and then he denies, and he's cursing as he denies, right? And there's a specific text I don't have on the screen where when Jesus is resurrected and he appears to the women first, again, women, power, he says, right, go tell the disciples and Peter. No, and I'm serious. And there's people that think that's just he really wanted Peter to know. No, there's a lot of, I won't want to say evidence, but there's a lot of convincing stuff that Peter was no longer considered himself a disciple. He had denied, he had abandoned Right? And if you find where Jesus found him after the resurrection, he was back on the boat. He had gone back to his old life. He was fishing again. But Jesus said, I still, I still want him. And then Jesus on the beach restores Peter. He gives him three chances to acknowledge Jesus. And Peter does the three, and it like cancels out, if that makes sense, the three denials. It's a whole other thing. But Peter, in this moment, we're about to see Peter has been radically transformed, radically transformed. And was he radically transformed through his own efforts, through trying really hard, through willpower, through just, I'm going to do better now? No, no. He wasn't capable of that. He was transformed through the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that made him a totally different person so he raises his voice, and there are probably, at least in this situation, tens of thousands of people that he's speaking to. So think about your first sermon. Your first sermon is like 20,000 people. That's nerve-wracking, but he stands up with boldness. Some of your translations might say that he stood up like boldly. So we're actually going to read this. We're getting close to the end, but I really want to read what he said. It's just really good to do this sometimes together. So this is what he said when he stands up. This is Peter's first sermon, okay? And I'll throw in some comments here and there on it as we go. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And like I always say, clearly they never went to a tailgate at Kinnick Stadium for a Hawkeye home game, right? It's only nine. Oh, we've been at it for two hours. So, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last day. This is such a great quote. It's from Old Testament prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. What did we talk about earlier in the Old Testament? Just the elite of the elite of the elite God's chosen every once in a while. But the prophecy was, I will pour out my spirit on all people. On all people. Your sons and daughters. That's a big deal. Daughters. Again, women weren't viewed with respect. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and, on, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. He's talking about Jesus' second coming. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, accredited by God to you. How? By miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, I mean, this is strong stuff, first, first sermon. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. I love this. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death had no chance. David said about him, talking about King David in the Old Testament, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. That would be a verse that might be worth putting on your refrigerator. It's just a powerful thing to remember continually. Then he goes on, almost done here. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. So he's clarifying this is Jesus. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He's talking about all the people that were with him, all the apostles and disciples at the time. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Mic drop. His first message. Peter was a fisherman. He was not a learned guy. He was not a good speaker. And he just puts together one of the most epic messages in a short message packed with stuff ever that literally changed the course of human history. Now, Acts 2, 37 through 41. So he gets done drops the mic, walks off the stage. When the people heard this, they, will, they were cut to the heart. Some translations may say they were pierced to the heart. Like there was just like this like massive, like, oh, oh my gosh. Like he's right. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They realized their guilt. They realized their, that they were complicit in killing God's chosen one, the savior, the Messiah. And they want to know, what should we do? Peter replied, repent, right? Not a very popular thing nowadays to tell people, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is kind of where we get the idea of praying a prayer for salvation, which makes, again, good sense because you're repenting in the name of Jesus and you're asking for forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he did what? He warned them. Isn't that interesting? He warned them. And he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Still pretty relevant today. Warn people. Plead with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation that's perishing. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And I don't know how they pulled this off. Those who were accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the original megachurch. You go from 120 people, you have your first service. Now you have 3,120. I don't know how you do that. If we went from what we have right now and added 3,000, we'd be in trouble in a lot of ways. It'd be good trouble, but it'd be trouble nonetheless, right? 3,000 were added to their number that day. So we've answered, what, was Jesus, what were Jesus' parting instructions? Go wait in Jerusalem for the gift. What was the response of the disciples? They waited in Jerusalem. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit fell with power. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit in fire. Peter preached with radical boldness. People were convicted of their sins and what they'd done and repented in droves and they baptized and added 3,000 people to the church. That's a good day. That's a good day. The last thing here that we're gonna hit, Tim, if you wanna go ahead and make your way up, just about done, just about done. Question four. What things seem to be the primary focus of the early church? You have this church that's born in, through the Holy Spirit, baptized in water and in the Holy Spirit, and 3,120, the initial group. It says in Acts 2, 42 through 47. So after all this has happened, right? 
All this has happened. So we can again ask this question, what now? What now that we waited, that the Holy Spirit came, that Peter preaches with boldness, that we had 3,000 people added? We baptized them. They got the Holy Spirit. What now? What now? Luke tells us what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They means they spent a lot of time together, getting to know each other, hearing each other's stories, living life together. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, so the original communion meal. These were full meals, though, full meals that they shared together, and to prayer. They devoted themselves, and read it again, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. We know, as we'll continue to read in Acts, in Acts 3, next, next week, radical healings, radical miracles, people healed of cancer, right? And the doctors are like, as far as we're concerned, you're cancer-free. We don't know why. And they were filled with awe and wonder. They had everything in common. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. We're not talking about socialism, okay? We're not talking about like living in a hippie commune, right? Like off the grid and growing our own vegetables, which fine, it's cool if you wanna do that. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. And some people read this and they're like, well, it's not that way anymore. No, this was out of generosity of their heart because their lives had been changed and they recognized what had real value and they didn't have a desire to hold on to stuff or to have more than somebody else for a status symbol or because they felt like they deserved it or they earned it or they worked harder or, or whatever it was. They just recognized these are my brothers, these are my sisters in Christ. We are all together and so what's mine is theirs and I'll hold nothing back. There's a whole sermon there, more than one. Every day, I'm sorry, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That's one to meditate on. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And this is a big one. And enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, this is like the quintessential vision for church. It's like, this is, this is amazing. So to answer that last question, what things seem to be the primary focus of the early church? Apostles teaching and prayer and fellowship. They had awe, they prayed for each other. They were watching miracles happen. They were selling property and distributing it to those who had need. They were meeting together, regardless of socioeconomic like lines and boundaries and ethnic boundaries, any of this stuff, they crossed all kinds of boundaries that were never allowed to be crossed back then because of the sort of caste system they'd established. They met together, they had glad and sincere hearts and they praised God and they enjoyed the favor of all people. Man, I wonder sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of the time, uh, if the church would still be described this way today. Is the church described as people that have glad and sincere hearts? They continue to meet together, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. I know there's a lot of context to that, but it still begs the question. This is the original. 2,000 years later, we're at best a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. We lose some of that. Those were the primary focus. So here's the thing. All of this stuff, what was the primary focus of the early church? I'm going to close with this. It was all about the realization that they had been transformed. 
the realization that they were now different people, that their lives had been changed once and for all, and they could never go back, and they could never be the same, and they realized who Jesus was, that he was worthy of it all, that they had to go all in, that there was no middle ground. They couldn't straddle the fence. They couldn't have one foot in and one foot out. They couldn't make Jesus a part of their lives and try to fit him in with the rest of their schedules and priorities and activities and social calendar and kids' sports and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't the way that it was going to work. It required everything they were. They had to go all in, all in. There was no such thing as somebody who was kind of a Christian back in the early church. No such thing. They have problems? Absolutely they did. But it was all in, all or nothing, absolute devotion, because they recognized the gravity of what Jesus had done for them and who he was and what he was asking of them for their life. And they considered it easily worth the sacrifice to give back to him what he'd given to them. So here's the question for the week, the last thing before I pray and we get out of here. The last thing is in light of all this stuff that I just shared about how things went in the early church and what they were devoted to and the significance of, of Jesus and all these things, the question for you is what now? What now? What now that you've heard the story, that you know who Jesus is, that you know what he did for you, that you know what the Holy Spirit is capable of, that you know what the Holy Spirit is capable of, Don, right? So what now? What do you do about that? Are you willing to devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching, so to speak, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer? Are you willing to have a glad and sincere heart and let go of bitterness and anger and resentment and all these things? Are you willing to lay down your life? Are you willing to crawl on the altar and let fire fall on you? Are you willing to be the sacrifice that God consumes? Are you willing to give all that you are for him? Are you willing to get off the fence? Are you willing to stop playing around? Are you willing to stop trying to fit Jesus into your life or make him one of your priorities instead of the singular priority and then let everything else fit in around that? Are you willing to seek his kingdom first and let everything else take care of itself? What now that you've heard this? My prayer is that you wouldn't just be like, that was another good sermon, Josh, and I'm gonna walk out and I'm gonna be exactly the same as I was when I came in an hour and a half ago. That's not, that's not what this is about. So my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would absolutely mess with each one of you, that he would not allow you to be the same, that you would leave this place and even though you might not go home and be somewhat radically changed by 2.30 or whatever, that you would know something has shifted, that you would know something is different, that you would have to stay up at night because you're just thinking about Jesus and what he's done for you and the impact that that should have on your life. And you start to evaluate your priorities. Pray that the Holy Spirit would gently and kindly bother you. That you would go all in. That you would go all in. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Simply as I can say it, thank you that you went all in for us. We want to go all in for you. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for the birth of the church. Thank you for the gift of the church. Let us be people who are devoted to you, devoted to each other, because we are your body. And we may be the only Jesus, as Jeff said, that some people see. Let us go all in for you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen.